Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Living With Our Hope podcast. It is an exciting new episode. I can't wait to be with you this morning. I hope that you have been uh, sitting on eggshells waiting for what we'll talk about next, and uh, I am so glad you're here. Uh, Every week or so, as you know, I invite somebody on the show and we talk about hope and we talk about hope as it pertains to our culture. We talk about how people tend to lose their hope and how we can gravitate back towards it in in Christ and with faith. And so today we have a pretty exciting conversation, I think, because I've been watching my friend Marlena Proper Deida Ramos Graves. I think I got it right, Marlena. And I probably didn't roll my R's enough, but she is from the country of Puerto Rico. Just kidding. She's actually from Puerto Rico, but I know enough to know that it is not a country. Um, But uh, you'll find out in a minute why um, these kind of things matter to Marlena. And she has written about uh, um, faith and God and speaks. And more importantly, she is a justice seeker. Her heart is for those who are marginalized, and we're going to be talking about these things today. We're going to talk about women and immigrants and asylum seekers and even refugees. Her mission in life is to overcome evil with good. She has an MDiv from Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York. She's written extensively for a number of publications, including uh, Hermeneutics, which is now uh, Christianity Today Women's Section, Our Daily Bread, my dad's favorite all-time publication. Yay. and other. It is. It's crazy. He passed away four years ago and read that book until he died. And so I'm sure he read read something you wrote at some point, Marlena. She has a book out that I'm going to give away later in the show um, called A Beautiful Disaster, Finding Hope in the Midst of Brokenness. And I believe your second book is coming out soon. You'll tell us about that in a second. She's married to Sean, has three beautiful girls, and they live in Toledo, Ohio, as mainstream middle America as it can be. And today we're going to talk about everything in the world. So Marlena, so good to have you here. Thank you. I'm very, very thrilled. Very glad to be with you. You like my intro? Puerto Rico? I intro. It's fun. <laughs> it is fun. Well, it's fun because um, you care a lot about um, people getting things right, don't you? I think so because I myself, um, I want to live like Jesus. And I think the worst thing in my whole life would be to disappoint him. And so mm-hmm. I mean, I know I'm a sinner and I know that I, you know, I sin and I will disappoint him, but I never want to um, bring any kind of um, uh, defame his name with my actions or with my behavior. And my hope is that the church won't either. Well, and you, you know, it's interesting because you really do have uh, an immense amount of passion. I mean, you are, um, have some roots in, in background with people maybe who are more emotional, but you really are very um, passionate, I would say, about um, some of the things that are going on in our culture today. And I want to get into that so much with you because I think your voice is so important. We've had um, Carlos Rodriguez is one of my favorite people who is now living in Puerto Rico. So got, you know, listeners have been exposed to sort of what's happening down there, but just a lot of injustice, even in, in, in the way that our country's probably handled um, issues down there. And now, of course, so much happening down south of the border, which can be such a hot topic. But maybe you give us a little bit of sense of where you come from. Tell us a bit about your background. Did you grow up in Puerto Rico? How'd you end up in Ohio? Yeah. Um, well, I was born in Puerto Rico. I lived there about three or four. And then I moved to California because my dad was in the military. And that's where he met my mom. So I grew up speaking Spanish first. And then... Um, we ended up after my dad got out of the military, we ended up just moving to rural Northwestern Pennsylvania where he was from. And so I went back again to Puerto Rico in fourth grade for a year, but really I've spent most of my time outside of Puerto Rico. And there's a lot of 
what people say, mainland Puerto Ricans, some are New Yorkans, you know, but my, yeah. my situation is kind of odd because I lived in a very rural area, the northern tip of Appalachia, but that's where my dad was from. And so I grew up speaking Spanish. In fact, I didn't realize until I was like 23 years old when my best friend from high school's mother saw me again. I was in her daughter's wedding. And her mom said, you lost your accent. I was like, did I have an accent? She's like, oh, yeah. And uh, I was like, really? She's like, yeah, you had an accent. Now you have an Ohio accent. And, um, and uh, you know, when I was younger, too, I mean, I, I guess I spent more time in the sun. I was a lot darker. And at some point, people thought I was an African-American, uh, which is no problem with me. But I just it was just, I think, uh, uh, not being exposed to different kinds of people, or maybe they thought I was mixed race, which I am, but um, right. it's interesting. But I, how I got to Ohio was that I went to a, a Christian college in Ohio, uh, Cedarville University. And then um, after college, I married my husband. He's from Toledo, but then we moved around for his job as a professor. But I've spent most of my time as uh, after college, in Ohio, almost every part of Ohio, except for five years when we were in Rochester, New York, which I also loved. But really? now I'm in Ohio and I guess I don't mm -hmm. have an accent, but I still I am in Ohio. That's crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, so when you so two thoughts, uh, do you identify more as Spanish or as like Anglo? Like what's your uh, what do you think? Hispanic. What do you trade? What do you think? Hispanic because I grew up speaking Spanish, even though we lived in Western Pennsylvania, we were like the only Spanish people. And that was my primary culture, uh, Hispanic culture within uh, my house, my household. But um, and I speak Spanish pretty well. And it's kind of weird because, uh, you know, um, I guess I'm biracial. Like, you know, some people look I, I don't even like to get into all this. Some people look more Hispanic than I do, but they don't speak Spanish because they grew up here and never speaking Spanish. And I might pass uh, as white, but I speak more Spanish. So it's really hard to um, designate culture, but my influence, except for college and university, was mostly Hispanic, mostly, except for... And, and so like, what about your church world? Was it... No, like not the church world, because there were no Spanish churches where we live. But now I currently work in a Hispanic uh, organization. I should say. You teach at a seminary, uh, at a seminary. Is that what I read? Or? Um, I, I'm an adjunct at a seminary at Weinbrenner seminary, but I, um, work at the farm labor organizing committee with, um, migrant farm workers. And, uh, oh. they're mostly Mexican, um, uh, mostly Mexican friends that I work for, but, uh, I represent Puerto Rico. <laughs> I represent. <with> <laughs> Well, that's awesome. And your church community now is more Spanish speaking. Like, do they preach in English or in Spanish? My church is not. My church is not. Um, okay. I don't go to a Still, okay. church right now. But um, so it's I, I'm always in between two worlds, you know. Um, it's always like both, you know, both sides. So I may be in two worlds. Well, and I understand that to a degree. I mean, I'm Arab. And so I, I yeah. so, totally get like being sort of confused in a sense or maybe being confusing. I don't know yeah. if we're so much confused just people like sort of like you sort of tend to be a chameleon, I guess, a certain degree, not intentionally, sure. but sort of 
you mix in and out depending on the situation. Well, one thing I did notice on your Twitter, like you had gone from like having Marlena Graves to actually putting in, I read your name from Twitter on purpose. Tell us about that, like all of the names there. Yeah, my my boss was like, you should put your Spanish names in. And I'm like, okay, for so long I haven't. And I'm actually... Well, Carlos has like 16 names too. What's the deal with that? I'm sorry. Well, like it's your, fa- it's like your mom's family's name with your your dad and then my last my husband's last name so like a lot of Spanish people that's normal to keep your family names and I hadn't used them for so long and I actually think that was um like I felt like a part of me was lost so he's like you should put your please use your Spanish name because that's part of who you are and I'm like yeah that's right I'm losing my culture by not using those names and I was glad that he pointed that out because it's almost like, um, you know, people talk about assimilation to the point where I, I didn't even, um, you know, realize that, you know, what, what was going on. And I also think that, uh, knowing your, uh, history is very important. And so I want my girls to know that too. So, you know, right. you speak Spanish a little bit. I, my youngest daughter refused when I tried to teach her. She's like, no, I'm not <laughs> doing it. And so now they want to learn more. So I'm trying to teach them a little bit of Spanish, but they, they know they need right. to learn because there are yeah. people all the time that speak Spanish. And they're like, I need to learn Spanish. So, well, how did you feel like I, I've had some African-American people on the podcast and hope to have more, but like we, we've talked about racism on several episodes, but as a, as a Hispanic person in the American church, like, did you feel racism growing up? I, in some ways I did. I mean, not to the extent, like my brothers are darker than I am. And so like my older brother, especially around nine 11, like he was harassed at the Northern border and um, chopped longer. They're like, um, and you, can identify he's like you're from the middle east you know like as if he were a tourist. <laughs> my brother's good luck one brother i mean yeah he stopped traveling for a while yeah, like he looked as if he's iranian they said to him and my younger brother's a little bit darker and i have some other friends whose families like they're from the same family but it's just dark you know whatever kind of pigmentation you get and we're light-skinned puerto rican so i don't but i did have i didn't know um when I was younger, I, I remember one extremely offensive thing said to me, well, besides my hair, um, one extremely offensive thing said to me when I was in, I think it's seventh grade, my, my mom, my best friend's boyfriend's mother, we were sitting like at some school concert or something. We were sitting in the bleachers, I remember. And she said within my hearing, and I just bawled when I went home, because I didn't know, like, I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, you shouldn't be friends with her, meaning me, because they're all sluts. Oh. They're all sluts. I was like, what? Wow. So, That's bad. Like, yeah. uh, I, the, those Spanish women are, you know, and I was so like, it was so out of context. She didn't know anything about me. Mm-hmm. My family it was like an ethnic slur and it was bad. And I would hear people, you know, call, I mean, they kind of lump all Latin people in with Mexicans or like they make fun of my brother. They call him Pedro. They don't even say his name. You know what I mean? So yeah. my older brother. So, I mean, it's not, for me, it hasn't been as bad as some, some of my friends and family members. And it's not nearly as bad as uh, a lot of the African-Americans that I know, but um, I've felt hints of it, but not as much. Yeah. As when did you hear as an adult, 
person, you started writing, you know, you, well, you went to seminary, knowing you would write or did that evolve? Because why did you start care so much about uh, fighting some battles in the world of justice? And tell us about that. How did you, what did you start? What got your attention at the beginning? Well, I have always defended the people that were picked on or marginalized. So um, in elementary school, it was a girl who was very poor. And so I can trace this back as, you know, well, actually kindergarten, before kindergarten, I would defend people that were either being bullied or um, I remember one girl and I won't mention her name, but people would pick on her relentlessly. And I was like, don't you guys know this is wrong? She didn't do anything. And it was all because she was very, very poor. And I was very, very poor, but she was even poorer than I was. And so, um, but the, Interestingly enough, it didn't um, separate me from the other kids in school. I still got along with people. They almost admired it, but I would defend her to the hilt and, you know, break up fights between girls in the locker room. And I think I was just always like, um, how can you, how can the strong pick on the helpless when they didn't even do anything? Even if they did something, you shouldn't. But my point was, uh, yeah. people that were exactly. targeted. Yeah. So the, I can trace that through my whole life. And a lot of my friends say, Marlena, you're such a gentle, peaceful person, but I'm like, okay, but I have no hesitation speaking if um, the people are being mistreated and right. anywhere almost. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I think that's just a God given gift maybe. And it's right. inflamed by reading the Bible. Right. And as an adult, what was the first sort of, you know, sociopolitical issue that sort of grabbed your attention? You're like, that is wrong. We cannot stand for that. Um, I remember people making racist comments about African-Americans, how they're stupid and whatever. And I, I don't remember if I was on the radio around Christian. Yeah, it was just bad. And I'm like, hello, they weren't even allowed to go up to a certain grades in school, I started thinking about this because I was a history major in college till like, you know, the sixties and integration and people were kept from learning how to read. So of course uh, their intelligence is not in question. Their intelligence is fine, but they were kept from getting the education that everyone else was. So of course they're going to be behind in some things. And then I learned more even now about like lead paint poisoning. If that's like today, so I started thinking when people started making these slurs and the, these comments and uh, against poor people too, uh, politicians would say stuff. I'm like, man, I grew up poor and most of the people I know are the hardest working people I know. And then I'm like, no, I've met uh, uh, people whose parents own businesses and they don't do any work. They play video games all day and, and they're in charge. So please don't tell me like the poor are lazy and that they're all in that situation. And then I learned about systemic injustice and stuff, but I started picking it up like on my own. Um, I started studying that kind of stuff, but um, I started with the poor, you know, people needlessly being picked on. I just cannot have it. (laughs) Well, and and you had sort of, do you feel like, uh, like you had a hurt, I guess happened. I don't know if I'm over, you know, maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, but you left Cedarville not long ago and it was a bit of a difficult season. Did that sort of propel you into some of the work that you're doing now, or were you already pre-active and justice? Do you want to talk about that chapter a little bit in your life? Sure. Because sort of the woundedness that happened there, because I think this is a theme that comes up a lot. Christians who are wounded by other Christians. Yeah. Well, I think the people that have been 
the worst are Christians. <laughs> I actually don't <laughs> mind or, or professing Christians. I don't mind. I was just saying, I don't mind, but I don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians or have the gifts of the spirit in them. So right. they say outlandish, crazy, hateful, and do murderous things. I'm like, okay, that's evil. The devil has come to steal right. and destroy. So that's what I expect. But it's when Christians act like that. And you want to talk about being inflamed. I feel like my calls to the church, yes, to the broader culture. And I will, def- uh, we, maybe we'll talk about it later, immigration. But when I see Christians acting like unbelievers, and yeah. um, when I see unbelievers acting more like Christ than Christians, that will put me over. I'll toss some temple tables with that. And in a different yeah, yeah. way, I guess, because people say I even still come off gentle. But I'm like, if that's the case, I'm still not going to put up with it. So, you know, I think C.S. Lewis said of all religious or of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. And that's been my experience. And so my experience, you know, I can go into uh, into great detail about Cedarville, but basically it was over. It was taken over by legalistic. uh, It was a coup by legalistic people from a seminary in the southwest. And the guy himself was already um, let go for his mistreatment of women. I don't even need to say his name. It could be easy to be found, but he tried to, he took over our school and he, he installed his people in our school. It was a coup. And so they went through each department, getting rid of people, not because they could get rid of people, not because of like bad teaching or, um, you know, anything immoral. Mm -hmm. They just found ways to make life miserable for everyone so that people would either quit or they just said, oh, we don't have enough money for your department anymore, so goodbye. And it was successful. Um, and to me, it was a microcosm of what happened in the two, that, that happened in 2012 and 2013. And that was a microcosm of the general election because of the same issues. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the people. I said, let's do Matthew 18. Let's talk. And even one of the instigators admitted that I was right. But he's like, yeah, these are the way things are. You got to go with the power. <laughs> I'm like, What? You know, you got to go with the power. He admitted that they weren't doing a right and wrong. And even still today, I get contacts from people saying how miserable they are at the school. Um, people I don't even know. But um, that just was the first time on a mass scale that I um, experienced Christians. And uh, we weren't the only one that left. I'd say 50, 60 people walked off the board. It was like a mass exodus, mass terminations and they get they find fun ways to do it and they give people non-disclosure agreements and i'm like well if you're doing what's right then why do people have to have a non-disclosure agreement and they give them a non-disclosure agreement so they can't talk about how they were treated or what happened but they can get a severance and so they put people in the um difficulty of either um i mean they either can tell what happened and have no money for their family or they can keep their mouth shut and get money for their family. It's a bad situation. We didn't take a non-disclosure agreement because we didn't have to. My husband found a job so I can talk about it. But um, I was over, I was like, oh, evil at the hands of Christians to other Christians. We felt like, when I say we, it's a collective we, like Joseph Brothers that threw us into the, the, the hole. Mm. And I see that happening on a, happening on a mass scale, whether it's with, um, the immigrants and the refugees and those seeking asylum or women that have been sexually abused. Like people 
who use pious words, they can even talk theology, they may even be pastors of churches. Their words sound good, but the way they treat either women, employees, those sexually abused, they care more about power, I've seen. And I call it the holy trinity, the holy untrinity, money, power, uh, popularity, and sex. I kind of put sex and power together. But uh, the same kind of temptations that Jesus faced in the desert, I feel like a lot of our church leaders, they gave into money and power and, and prestige and some into sexual things rather than following Jesus. And they can get away with it because a lot of people went to their church or because they're friends with people in political power. And it's just, to me, that's antichrist behavior. And I have no bones about saying it. Um, and that's a lot of the reason why I'm not where I was before. Cause if I would have just kept my mouth shut and not said anything, my husband would have not said anything. And everyone we know, if we would have just been quiet and not blown the whistle, we might have our jobs, but we would not have our souls. Has it impacted your future as a writer? Like you feel like that hurt you or helped you to be honest about where you stood? Well, it was probably the most pain I've ever suffered at the hands of Christians. Um, but not just because of myself. Um, but like all the people affected financially, theologically, people are like, I don't know if I'm a, people's children I'm like, are like, if this is what Christians are, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. You know, that mm-hmm. our, our life, whether for good or for evil. So in a, I know, you know this, but let's remind ourselves, our lives affect people for good or for evil. And so anything we do, whether it's, you know, the goodness that we hide in our heart or the evil is going to come out some way. And you know, in the uh, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Paul says, not many of you, you should be teachers because you're going to be held to a higher account. And I take that seriously. And I'm not like full time teaching, you know, as a, a pastor or pastoral leader or church leader right now. I've been in on church staff, but I am teaching through my writing, through my witness. And so yeah. I take that seriously. And how did it affect me? Um it just kind of fueled. I'm like Jeremiah, like it burns in, in my bones and in my soul, like not in anger. Cause if mm. I'm going to talk, I can't talk in anger and bitterness, but I can still tell the truth without harming other people. Um, because sometimes telling the truth in love means actually telling the truth, but wishing I, I want the people at Cedarville to flourish. I don't want them to be under this. I want them to mm. repent, you know, just like I need to, constantly live a life of repentance. So I think it's made me stronger because before I used to be scared. I'm like, oh, if I say this, then yeah. I might say the wrong thing and I'll have the theolo- theological police. You know, and I'm fairly, I mean, not big O, but little O orthodox. I'm not unorthodox. It's just, yeah, yeah. I would say I'm biblical because so, some people with the stances that they come off with, I'm like, I know you talk a lot about reading the Bible, but you actually read the Bible. Because I read, the, <laughs> I read the Bible. I read my Bible. And, right. and God talks about how to treat people, the, the, the alien and the stranger. And, and, and I mean, read the Old Testament, read the New Testament, read the words of Jesus in his life. Okay, yes, I went to seminary too. Do you know church history? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, right. I just think people don't read their Bibles, number one. And I, I really don't think they read their Bibles or listen to their Bible, however they I don't think people had God's word. Well, how, well, let's let's move into that. I mean, I think this is a good place to talk about a bit of the problem down south of the border. I mean, 
what has surprised you or has it surprised you the, the way that the church in the United States is dealing with the issue down south? Or are you like, no, this is par for course? I've, I've, some people say, oh, you know, I'm not surprised. They say, well, the white church or white evangelicals. I don't know why I'm still surprised. You know, I'm still surprised because yeah. it's the people that claim to read their Bible that are doing this. I don't know. I, I still keep being surprised um, by some of the things I hear. But I'm what are, like, let, let's dig into this a little. So because I mean, it, like, I'm just thinking like devil's advocates, like they're like, well, they're illegal. Like, should illegal people be allowed to come in? So how do you like, how do you tease that out? How do you love and show Christ like love? Like, what can what should the church be doing? Can you talk more about that? Yeah, um, I would really like to say undocumented. But to me, it's the focus on people, Mexico and south. So south of the border. But, you know, there's a lot of Asian students that are undocumented because they stay over or people that are on a tourist visa, they stay over. Um, But it's really focused on brown folk. And so one thing I would say, not that I would want anyone else done wrong, you know, and I've studied immigration and, you know, I don't know if you've talked to Matthew Sorens and Jenny Yang, but, you know, welcoming the stranger, um, very uh, helpful for me with the first version that came out years ago. I was working on immigration before that or with on the issue before that, but with people, because I saw how they were affected. And it's just, um, I feel like, let me tell you, I feel like they're scapegoats, um, a political scapegoat um, and using fear and same. I mean, we just have a long history in a, a, a cult in our American culture. You know, I mean, people treated the Irish bad in New York city for one time. They treated the Catholics bad. They treat the Japanese and the Chinese and, uh, Italians at one time, um, people didn't always like German immigrants and now it's, you know, the Latino people, but what, right. you know, let's just say prior to the last couple of years, I mean, ha- not having your papers has been a misdemeanor, which is the equivalent of a speeding ticket. And so, um, do we want the punishment to fit the crime? Well, what happened if you, what would happen if people got their children taken away from them? because they sped and got a ticket, you know, because that's mm. the equivalent of the crime. Now, it's a complex issue, but I do want to say that uh, as far as, uh, you know, if my children, my daughters were in harm's way, or if the car, and I've talked to a lot of people in person, so this is not hearsay, the cartels threatening to sell my kids, uh, or threatening to sell my kids to the cartels, I'm going to leave and do what I can for my family. Right. So even if they have to break the law, I mean, and I don't even know all the laws of countries if I'm coming from another country. But um, the situation with immigration, I mean, I mean, Reagan granted amnesty. I forget what year, maybe 1986. You might check me on that. But farmers and all sorts of people, employers and construction, the hotel industry, they all want workers. And a lot of them, we're going to talk about just the Latino population, a lot of them are Latinos. Like if we did not have Latino and Latinas, um, we would have no food on our food shelves. So, and farmers know that Latino uh, farm workers, Latina farm workers, they run agriculture in the United States. So, um, you know, I work with farm labor organizing committee. I tell people, well, if look at the food on your plate, because if who, who's the hand that harvested that food, you pray God, thank you. Uh, bless the hands that fixed them, but who harvested it? And what situation are they in? So the United States, the economy benefits 
from them. They pay into like, for example, Social Security. Our elders are drawing Social Security. They pay into Social Security, but they don't get the benefits from it. And mm. so they pay with a, a either, a, you know, um, a TIN number that the IRS TIN number gives them. And a lot of them, they pay, they're happy. They're hard workers. They want to work. They want to just provide for their family. It would be really nice if we could just give them a, a guest worker thing and they could go live with their families because they would rather stay with their families and leave their country. No one wants to leave home. It's only a different right. situation that, that causes But, you know, also, I mean, even moving beyond the politics, which, I mean, I hear what you're saying. This is, it is complicated and I agree with you, but I think, dream with me for a minute. Like, what could the church do? Like, you know, it seems to me like we're missing such an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus, even regardless of politics. Put away that on the shelf for a minute. What are practical things the church could do right now instead of what they're doing, just arguing and dividing? Well, I, I wish the church would talk to the legislators because they do have the ear of the president right now. Mm-hmm. And the um, they have the ear of the president and the Congress. So I would say, you know, if evangelicals, uh, I mean, I know not everyone listening is like evangelical, but if they pushed for it, we could change this whole thing. We could flip flop, but that's on a mm-hmm. high level. On a local level, I would say, uh, as uh, Michelle Warren has said in her book, uh, Proxy, it's a power, and other people have said, it's the power of proximity. Like, instead of like shouting at, and this applies to anything, but shouting at people talking about and over them, get to know them because I guarantee you, in every community, uh, there's immigrants, undocumented, get to know them in their situation and talk to them. And then you can find out, like, I know, Lena, you're in Chicago, but what is going on? What's What are the needs? And do not think that we would only give to them because most of them profess to be our brothers and sisters in Christ. We could learn from them and they could minister right. to us. And then you can find out what's, you know, what's needed with the immigration. I mean, you know, a lot of things with the children being separated, you know, um, and it gets kind of tricky because we don't, we want children. And Gina Thomas talks about this in her book uh, that's coming out. I think it's coming out separated by the border where she was, a, um, uh, she fostered a girl that was separated from her family. But wow. we need to put our presence in it in our, our skin. And like, for example, my church, and I didn't even come up with this. We meet people at Greyhound bus stations that are coming up from the border uh, that have gone through the asylum process. We give them food, we give them drink, you know, make sure they can call family members. And we only see them for 10 minutes at a bus station, but we pray with them and help them. And, uh, uh, how how do you know when they're coming? Like what schedule? And it's kind of a network um, that we find out about, but, uh, we try to help them out. Um, well, I would imagine, I mean, I would imagine there's so much fear in this, in, in the Hispanic community in general right now. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. sometimes you have some people were telling me they're do, and I, I honestly admit that my focus has been busy in the Middle East. And so sure. less on the details here, but like emergency raids or unexpected yeah. raids into homes and things that are just scary. And I, I think like, I think about Lebanon. I mean, I think about what the church has done. Not all the churches, but many local churches have stepped up in Lebanon to um, care for the needs of the Syrian refugees who are also illegally in Lebanon at the rate of 2 million people. Yeah. And so there is a choice there to politic it and to fight it or to say God could have a revival in a Muslim 
community, which is what has ended up happening is that God is at work massively in the Muslims. And I think it's because so many of the churches have said, you know what, forget politics. Let's do what you're saying, show up and give a meal and a, and, 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 and yeah, maybe some people can get involved in politics, but by and large, like, I feel like that's dividing us rather than, and we're asking the wrong questions in a sense, like we have an opportunity to, to be Christ to people who need it. So I think that's my burden often is we're caught up with the wrong thing. Yeah. And we can't wait for politicians to fix it either. They, I think if they see right. us doing the right thing and we should be doing the right thing, unbelievers sometimes act more like Jesus in this situation right. than believers. So I think this is a great opportunity for the church to show who she is. Right. Uh, but right now Amen. we're not doing the best job of it. And even unbelievers are like, are you kidding? I know Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, the politics aside, because it's been both sides of the aisle. So it's not just one side. It's yeah. both have done awful things for uh, the immigration situation. So I, 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 I don't want to come off as if it's like only one side of the aisle because it's both. And even though it's gotten worse, it's, both there's enough a wrongdoing to go around where where can people get like say you have somebody listening who feels compassionately saying all right you know what let's set aside politics let's let me be jesus to them these are kids who are scared these are whether or not they're right or wrong maybe they came for the wrong reasons maybe they didn't we don't know the details but we know there's souls uh that might or might not know the lord if they know the lord there are siblings in christ and if they don't they need to know the lord like no matter how you look at it what where can they go like where do they i, I you know you mentioned jenny yang and, and matthew Sorens' book and we'll link up some things in our podcast to that but mm-hmm. do you know people on the ground that someone can be like all right i want to do something here because i i know i've heard like doctors you're not allowed to just go and set up a clinic south you know in the in the bordering towns like you have to go through the government so there are some limitations as in terms of going to specific areas but what can the average Christian do to mobilize the love of Christ? Yeah, you know what? Thank you for asking that. We, uh, my friend uh, Jason Millwood and I, he's uh, out of uh, Tampa. I met him on Twitter. But anyways, we have, uh, um, and we are currently updating it. So it's called churchesformigrants.org, churchesformigrants.org. And um, that's where you can find uh, organizations that are doing stuff. And I contact the people myself and or look them up and do the research to to validate it and there's every kind of stream of christianity you know there's roman catholic lutheran baptist methodist you know whatever whatever because i know some people would prefer to give non-denominational people that prefer to give to um or get involved with you know their kind of christian stream right so that's what we're hoping to do because people do ask me and I'm like, there's plenty of organizations doing the work. The wheel doesn't need reinvented. They just need, uh, you know, presence, like your physical presence and financial support. Yeah. Who do you, who have you found to be your biggest allies in, in this, uh, in this justice work? Like, has there been any surprises like where you're like, wow, I didn't expect them to get it, you know, or you mean as far as Christians or like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean Christians and I, in the church. Like, I, I feel like the church is very partisan. And I, I sort of, I hate to sort of guess where a church will land, but you sort of have a sense of, you know, where progressives and more conservatives are going to land. But has there been any pleasant surprises in your work, uh, especially in the last few months as you focus on, you know, the issue with immigration i mean have you been like like pleasantly surprised by aspects of the church is there hope like do you see hope in churches in terms yeah, of I do a, a building a wave of desire to say man let's do something different here yeah you know what i've seen um 
you know, like the people in my church that got involved, I didn't have anything to do with it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they said, hey, but we need an interpreter, Marlena, can you interpret? Um, wow. But I've also seen like people that once they've actually studied it and like stopped listening to the politics, but actually studied history, studied um, the situation more, met migrants, then I see that's when there's a turnaround. It's when we're detached and we're like armchair philosophers or newsies that I see the yeah. most damage done. But I'm, I, I've seen some people like turn it around and there's people that might, I don't really, I try not to, I'm not gonna say I never, I try not to, I don't ever want to harm anyone or their reputation. So I try not to say anything about people, but I do say things about policies or behaviors. You know, I try to more yeah. keep it to the behavior and people might assume I'm talking about sometimes, sometimes I, but people might argue with me and I don't do this all the time on Facebook because I'm not in the mood to start arguments. I'm, I want uh, what uh, John says, first John says, you know, let, show your love in word and deed. <laughs> let us show yeah. it in word and deed, not just in word, but um, word and deed together. And people, I'll say, hey, well, why don't you come with me? Why don't you come to where I'm at? Why don't you see this up close? And that usually uh, de-escalates the situation. I'm like, you're welcome to stay at my house. And that's a mm. true offer. If someone's really disagreeing with me, I'm like, okay. I was like, but I don't feel it's fair for you to say stuff if you haven't met anyone or been involved or wow. studied the situation. And if you have, then, and, and I, I've read both. Does anybody take you up on it? Come to your house, spend the weekend. Said he would. Someone got, people said, maybe, you know, I'm working, whatever. But I, and I mean that I'm like, let's talk about this. I want to hear what you have to say. Maybe I'm missing something, but you, you come here and talk with me and, and, and come see the situation for yourself instead of for far away. And um, with my job, we might go to the border at some point. We're trying to work that out with different Congress people. But my point is, why don't you come along instead of, you know, yelling, not yelling because it's not, you know, vocal, but like through your words, why don't you see the situation for yourself? And then once you do that, then um, I'm happy to (laughs) like, you know. What do you hope will happen in the next few years of your life in terms of the church? Like, what's your dream? You know, I just wish the church would repent um, for many reasons. How we've treated women, how we've, and if someone, if a pastor has sinned badly and affected people, instead of just not admitting guilt, like you want, or a church leader, you know, we're supposed to model, we're supposed to follow Christ. Now, Jesus did not have to repent, but since we're not Jesus, we have to repent in our lives every day. We're all, every day we're being born again. I don't mean like, you know, like for the first right. time, we have to be reconverted to the way of Jesus every day because hmm. we as Christians are cultural captives. Martin Luther wrote a book, uh, The Cultural Captivity of the Church. He was talking about the Catholic, Catholic Church at the time. Hmm. We need to write a new cultural captivity of the church. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, or conservative or liberal. We're all captive in some way to this culture, and we need to repent of it. And figure it out. And we all might need to repent of different things, different ways that we've become captive, but it's naive and blind to our own sins if we think we're not captive in some way. And so um, my hope is that the church would repent and say, look, like truly we've sinned and we want to change. And it starts, you know, it might not be from those in the upper echelons with the most power, but if 
us on the ground if we start doing that and um, other Christians and unbelievers see our humility, then maybe they'll listen to what we have to say. But right now, people don't want to listen to what we have to say as a whole because they just see an arrogance, a meanness, a fear. And so we've kind of lost our witness on a collective basis. Um, And I actually think we're more, if you want to use the word, I don't even want to use the persecuted. We're more maligned for that because of how badly we've acted. We're not maligned, as Peter says, you know, for doing what's right, for doing what's wrong. And so I want the church to repent and be more like Christ. And that can only happen if I'm doing that. And my hope is that everyone around me would in whatever way. So you're in the Middle East. And I know a little bit about the work that you do, Lena. And I can't be Lena, but I can be me. And everyone can be where God has put them and be faithful where God has put them. And if we all do that, that's the body working together. And so that's my hope that we'd be more like Jesus. And I guess I'm... I don't know. I'm not cynical enough to think that we're beyond that. I think there's always hope mm. for us. I care more about the church. I say I'm a missionary to the American church. I mean, I care about unbelievers. Well, it's it's happening. I mean, be, there are people coming from, especially Asia, and, yeah. and they're calling this the mission field. It's, it's this is a reality, and 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 it's too good for that's good. I, I think I think uh, who are your role models? Who do you who oh. do you look up to? You know, that's a good question. I look up to people that are living like Christ and they're not necessarily um, famous because I don't know how the people that are in the limelight live their lives. I might like their words, but how are they living in private? So, you know, just, you know, there's a lot of elderly people that are so faithful that I admire. You know, people like my boss who's done a lot, but he, he doesn't talk about himself. I admire people that live like Christ, do what's right, but are humble. And yeah, I can name people in my small group. I can name a lot of undocumented immigrants, um, people with bravery. And so I want to be a pupil of the people that might not be in the limelight, but I know that are living like Jesus. So You looked up to Jean Vanier, didn't you? Jean Vanier, yeah. Jean Vanier, who uh, started art communities, and he left his job as a philosophy professor and went to live with people with intellectual disabilities. Yep. Yeah. I saw that on Twitter. Yes. Yeah. Uh, just brought up some of your thoughts. I, I was really moved by that because he really is an example of a man after Christ's heart. And uh, I think that's, that's awesome. What's your book that you're working on now? I think you finished the manuscript of, of my right, or it's coming yeah. out soon. Yeah. I'm pretty sure today we just talked about the title of anniversary uh, is going to go with the title. The way up is down. And it's about, um, you know, big Greek word, uh, kenosis, but just self-emptying, basically. What does it mean to be the servant of all? Like Jesus, what would such a life look mm-hmm. like? Because Jesus went as low as he could go. <laughs> uh, yeah. I a Catholic priest that said, Jesus went so low, I don't think anyone can take that position from him when he left mm-hmm. heaven to come to earth. And so, um, and that's from Philippians chapter two. So my book mm-hmm. is about what Philippians chapter two would look life would look like right now. And um, just uh, having this mind uh, in you, which is in Christ Jesus, though he was rich, he became poor. You know, Paul talks about that. And in each of the chapters in my book, I just take a kind of a different theme and topic, for example, like generosity, or um, I have a a chapter on memento mori on remembering our deaths and why that's important and that why that would humble us. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And um, so I take different kind of themes about uh, the way up in the kingdoms down. Cause you know, um, Peter also says, humble yourself before the God so that in due time he might lift you up. And so Jesus did all those things. And so if I want to follow Jesus, what would look like, what would it look like for me to live like that with Jesus and other people throughout the church alive and dead as my examples? Well, we're going to give away, I think I have five copies of your book. I'm going to give away four of them. Keep on. But, but uh, tell us about that book briefly as we come here to, to towards the end of, of this show. It's called, um, uh, I want to, don't want to say, Beautiful Disaster, okay. Finding yeah. Hope in the Midst of Brokenness. Yeah, just yeah. thinking of the first words. So tell us a bit about it so that people can email me and ask for a copy, and that's how we usually do the giveaways. Oh, I would love it. Um, So that book was about, like, kind of like, memoir bible teaching all mixed up into one uh but it it's about how the wilderness like what it's like to live in the wilderness and where god is in our wilderness experiences and i use my own life as an example but um you know god did so many miracles in the wilderness when uh mm-hmm. the israelites were in the wilderness and um it, it's just a place uh where it could be a living hell or it could be you know, miraculous. And we all go in and out of the wilderness throughout our lives until we reach the promised land, you know, when we die and go to be with Christ. And so, um, what, what's the wilderness? Where's God in the wilderness and what lessons can be learned and gleaned in the wilderness. And so it could be great suffering for some people. It's great suffering. And we all have our moments of great, great suffering. And for other people, it's their moments of quiet desperation in ordinary life. They feel mm-hmm. like their everyday life's a wilderness because they feel like, you know, you know, it could be a mom at home and feels like, well, my life's not important. All I do is with the kids. And I don't think that at all. But some people, you know, think, yeah. well, I'm not doing anything great. And this is a wilderness experience for me because I feel like I'm not living out my purpose. I'm just kind right. of nobody. And so it's for people in different um, situations and where God shows up in that. Well, it's certainly in theme with our podcast, the Hope Podcast, Finding Hope in the Midst of Brokenness. So we appreciate you writing a book to match what we have to say. Your message couldn't be more fitting. If anybody knows anything about me, you know that I'm obsessed with the wilderness and uh, uh, all that the Bible teaches on that. So this is awesome. And how can people find you, Marlena, online? Can you give us some of your connecting points? Yeah. uh, Well, I've got to update my website right now, but it's uh, MarlenaGraves.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Marlena Graves, you know, and I'm on Facebook too. I've also Instagram. You're most active. Are you most active on Twitter probably? Um, or Twitter. Yeah. If you want to, yeah. if you're on Twitter, I'd love you at Marlena Graves. So thank you so she much. She answers tweets and, and on and on. So if you listen to this or have more questions, I mean, we could basically the tip of the iceberg here, but um, there are a lot of people who love Jesus, who are passionate about uh, this work that Marlena's doing. And I, I think it's, um, uh, important that we talk about it more and more. I, I really appreciate you coming on here. I know that uh, um, I know that it's a difficult topic, but I also believe with all my heart that it is a, heart, a topic that Jesus cares about and there are people that Jesus cares about. And I think that's the key is to remember the hearts and the souls behind um, issues, I think. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, hey guys, if you're uh, here still, I hope you are. We uh, are going to come to an end here. If you have any questions about the podcast, if you need more resources in your Christian walk, or if you just need prayer, why don't you email me at lena at livingwithpower.org or check out our livingwithpower.org website or app. 
download a ton of free stuff. Hey, uh, we believe in hope because we believe in Jesus. If you uh, agree, that's great. And if you don't, we'd love to tell you more about him. So uh, shoot me an email and uh, come back next time.